Herstwick Podcast, Episode 4. Welcome to the fourth installment of the Hurstwick Podcast. I am your host, John Davis. The interview you're about to hear was recorded shortly after an outdoor sparring event held by Hurstwick the previous weekend. We don't really explain that in the interview, so we thought it would be a good idea to give you some background before we begin. There are two Hurstwick groups in Massachusetts, actually. We, of course, have the original group at our Valhalla training facility in Millbury. We also have the Vinland group based in East Massachusetts out on Cape Cod. We like to get the two groups together a few times a year to share ideas, learn from each other, and most importantly, practice our fighting skills. This was one of those events. We had an intense day of competition followed by several scenario-driven combat exercises. We always learn a lot when we do these types of events, so Rainier Oskarsson and I thought it would be a good idea to bring in one of the folks who is really adept at this type of training. So we called up Robin Cooper, one of our instructors at Hurstwick. Robin brings not only a strong background in martial arts to the table, he also served nearly two decades in the United States Army Special Forces. Over the years, Robin has brought extensive experience to bear in our training, in particular scenario-based training, which we're going to discuss at great length in this episode. So, without further ado, on to our show, Train As You Fight. Our guest tonight is Robin Cooper, a uh, senior instructor with, with Hurstwick. And also helping me uh, with their interview today is Rainier Oskarsson of Iceland, our uh, chief consultant and fight coordinator. Robin, Rainier, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Hello, John. Rainier. First of all, Robin, in addition to being instructor with Hurstwick, uh, you have a rather varied and colorful background. So uh, tell us about yourself and uh, how you came to get involved with Hurstwick. Yeah, so um, I'm a former member of the U.S. Army Special Forces, and I served on a Special Forces A team for 10 years and spent another 10 years within the uh, Special Forces community. And uh, after I retired, I was looking for uh, something to be involved with, to stay in shape, and also study some various uh, other types of martial arts. So uh, I got involved down at the Higgins Armory and... uh, that's really what kind of led me here to Hurstwick. So, what drew you into the in, into Viking combat? Um, I mean, obviously, you um, you've been doing some martial arts stuff in the military and so forth, but uh, something must have jumped out at you when you were uh, noticed we had a Viking program at at the Higgins. Yeah, well, uh, you know, as a member of a Special Forces A team, I saw many similarities to the people we call Vikings. You know, so. You know, we were a close-knit band of brothers who traveled faraway places and infiltrated using specialized means of transportation. So, you know, this is really very similar to what the Vikings accomplished using their specialized means of transportation, the the Viking longship. So um, then on a visit to Denmark, uh, we went there to train with the Royal Danish Frogmen, and we visited several Viking Age sites that were co-located at their site there on uh, Roskilde uh, Fjord. And while we were there, we also visited the Viking Ship Museum. So this really increased my interest in the Viking Age. So I started studying everything I could relating to the Viking Age. 
And then I guess it was in uh, 2008 while studying there at the Higgins Armory, I was studying other forms of historical European martial arts. Um, I met Dr. William Short, and I attended the presentations he gave there at the museum, and shortly thereafter, we formed a group to study Viking Age combat, and so here we are 10 years later into that experiment. So Viking combat is a really complex topic, and it's not just about beating each other with Viking weapons. You must know about the culture, the history, the the details of, of their belief system, and so on and so forth. And you have really specialized eyes to look at what we're doing. What do you think about Herstwick's uh, approach to reverse engineering Viking combat? Yeah, that's, um, I think, one of the things I'm really proud of there at Herstwick is the way we uh, go about researching and, uh, and studying Viking Age combat. You know, one of the missions of Special Forces is to train, evaluate, and advise. So as a small unit tactics instructor, I trained, evaluated, and advised individuals in combat. So this really helps me in our Herstwick Viking combat training. Because as you know, there was nothing written down. No one knows how they fought. So, you know, how, how do we do that? And there's little information of exactly how they fought. But, you know, we can take the weapons they used and make a highly educated guess as to how they can be used effectively. And this is really our approach at Herstwick. We can see what works well and what doesn't work well. And by using this uh, information along with skeletal forensics of battle injuries, we can get an idea of the uh, areas that were targeted. And then we can see how to best acquire those targets you know, with the chosen weapons. So it's my understanding, Robin, that a while back, uh, just a little background for the listeners, a while back we did a, um, a location shoot in, uh, in Iceland, recreating the final battle of Gisla Sersen. And I understand that was your idea to do, to do that on location. Is that true? Well, yeah, I, as we studied these sagas and talked about the battles and how they unfolded, you know, terrain is always a key factor in a battle. So I was really curious as to the location to where these these things happened. And the locations are well known there in Iceland. So um, we were able to travel to those lake locations and actually see the, the terrain and where these battles actually took place. Um, you know, one thing we do in the military is um, we study past battles. So this um, hopefully allows us to not repeat this, the same mistakes that were made previously. So um, one way to do this is to do what we call a staff ride. Uh, we study the battle, then we go to the actual site and see it firsthand. So this gives us, uh, you know, firsthand perspective into the battle and really allows you to see how various factors such as the terrain affected the outcome. And, you know, so this is this is what we did with Herschel. You travel to the actual sites of the final battles of Geesley and Gretter. And when we got there and saw the terrain, this really gave us great insight into how the, the terrain influenced the battles, the two battles that we studied there. I think, you know, the terrain is key to both of those battles. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember when we went to the Giza site being struck by how unique that terrain was. And, um, you know, I'm curious... After reading the saga and reading the description of the battle there and uh, the fight that took place, 
Was that terrain what you were expecting? You know, how did the reality of the place line up with uh, what you had read or imagined in the saga? Um, yeah, it's uh, you know really enlightening when you go there and see it. When they talk about you know him making their their final stands, you know, especially uh, Geesley, you know, when he went up to Einhaber, when we actually went up there and saw how difficult it was to get there, and how you could really only. Ap- approach you know you could approach from either side but only one at a time really so it was a very strategic place for him to defend and the same thing with Dronke Uh, you know that's a fortress out there a natural fortress out in the middle of the ocean there so you know in in both locations uh, they could see people coming from far away Geesley could see way down the fjord or up either side of the fjord so um and, and Greta could see you know for many miles it's not like anyone was going to sneak up on them so they were very good strategic locations for them to hide out and we should mention that uh if for listeners who are not familiar with the saga Drangi island off the northern coast of iceland is uh it's basically a volcanic cliff uh sticking up out of the uh, ocean it's about how how high was it rainier or 500 feet so 500 feet you know yeah, I mean, plus or minus in places, but, you know, it's around, around 500 feet, so it's a uh, quite an obstacle. I mean, at one point where they were being attacked, you know, this Norwegian guy came after him, and he just ran right off the other side, and that was the end of him. So, <laughs> <laughs> during an earlier attack, this, this uh, occurred, but, uh, you know, the only reason that they failed was because the kilometer left the ladder down and so Theor Bjorn and his men were able to climb up and uh, to to attack them and you know with Greter wounded and near death as he was they you know they couldn't uh, provide the proper lookout and defense that they needed to but you know it was a really good location while it lasted. An interesting uh, subject though now you are in the modern military and uh, you have to look through two types of glasses uh, so as in the interview we gave on, gave on the DVD, you talked about this not being a preferred location in the modern military uh, way if you were an outlaw, but it worked really well in the Viking Age. Uh, could you give us just a few comments on why it was terrible in the in the older day in modern times and really good in in the Viking Age? Uh, sure. Um, well. Today, just as in Greta's day, there are pros and cons, but, you know, I I think Greta had the advantage over the modern outlaw uh, because at least there were sheep back during that time for Greta to eat. And, you know, of course there were fish, birds, eggs, seals, but, uh, you know, to have the sheep right there in the hut with them, he, for the winter, they had a ready supply of food with them. So they had the advantage and, uh, you also have to remember, you know, today with modern communication, the isolation may not be, you know, the best advantage so, uh, for the modern outlaw. So, uh, but I think for Gretter, it was a perfect location because he was far enough away that no one could come and get him r- real easily or readily. But, uh, um, but he was close enough that he could go to the land, and he did. We know he went to the uh, Hagranis thing, you know, in disguise and with, and, and wrestled there uh, to the dismay of the uh, the attendees there. He tricked them, you know, to uh, let him wrestle with no repercussion. And then he uh, threw off his disguise and they saw who he was and they weren't very pleased. But uh, he was able to wrestle and then travel back to 
to his fortress there at Tronque. So uh, it was good for Gretter, but I think today uh, maybe the isolation is not such a good thing. You know, the, the scarcity of the food, the water, the only water on the island is what seeps through and you have to go to a certain location to get it. So um, for Gretter, it was good. I don't think today it would be such a good place to hide. But it's also the point of tools and tactics. Uh, you mentioned uh, that uh, you'd see him from air and so on. Well, sure. With, uh, you know, modern surveillance, you know, they can see what's going on up there on the top of that flat plateau. As were in Gretter's day, I mean, if they stood over there on the Raker, the closest point of land, and they saw Gretter over there, well, what, what were they going to do about it? Nothing. So, you know, today it's it's much different, you know, with the modern technology, you know, if you see somebody over there on a plateau, you know, you can uh, do what you need to do to take care of them in a short amount of time. It wasn't that way uh, for Gretter. You know, he had plenty of time to prepare uh, for anyone who was coming after him. So, you, you know, you also have to remember that Gretter had been an outlaw for 19 and a half years at this point when he went to Dronke. And, uh, you know, he had been cursed, uh, so he was afraid of the darkness, and he was afraid to be alone, so that's why he went and got his brother uh, to go there with him. Um, so even though it did provide some refuge for him, you know, it ultimately was his, his downfall because of those, um, those weaknesses that he had, he had incurred. Um, and plus they were really out to get him, you know, because at 20 years, you know, his case would have been absolved. And uh, so they only had about six months to come and get him. So they were highly motivated uh, to come get him also. So we've done a number of uh, kind of larger scale outdoor events and um, the and, you know, we're trying to get uh, at least uh, half a dozen people on a on a side and aside from obvious differences like uh you know there's no firearms in the viking age um how, how would you say um your, your tactics have to change and your your thinking has to change when you're evaluating the ground or when you're um sizing up the tactical situation or the ter terrain situation there's a huge difference because you know obviously like you said in the modern age uh, we have firearms so you know you can uh operate at much further distances as in the Viking age, every close and personal. So you, you know, as where in today, you may want to have some separation between each other and your forces. You can still, you know, support each other from those distances, but you really can't do that with a, you know, hand weapons with swords, axes, spears. So um, you do have some projectile, you know, spear and, and archery, but, you know, really, um, those weren't big factors in a lot of these battles. Um, so you really need to adjust your tactics so that you stay cl much closer together. So that's one thing I've learned is, you know, if we stay together to support each other, we're much more effective than if we split up and get killed off one at a time. So, um, the last few battles we've I've really concentrated on that on that um, aspect of it and, and uh, getting really close with the per the people that I'm with and uh, trying to, you know, provide mutual support to each other. So it seems to work out really well. So that's obviously one way that you need to uh, change your tactics from uh, modern tactics to the tactics they would have used during the Viking Age. 
Yeah, and I and I remember from my own military experience, which is uh, quite a long time ago, but uh, still, um, that your ability to support uh, other members of your group or your team had a uh, you know a lot to do with the range of the weapons. And as we found in our um, in our training and in our uh, outdoor sparring, uh, you know the range of a weapon is about uh, three feet, <laughs> and so uh, and necessitates a very different uh, approach. Um, and I don't know if you would necessarily agree or disagree, but I think one of the things that I discovered was that archery, uh, which is pretty limited in our in our experience, but archery hasn't added a whole lot of hasn't bought us a lot of distance. I would say. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it takes it out beyond the three or four feet, but yeah, still, uh, um, it doesn't really change the tactics dramatically. You still want to stay together, even even to protect from the archers, uh, you know, because at least hopefully one or two people in your party, if not everybody, would have a shield, so you can uh, stay together and form a shield wall. And so we know from reading the sagas, they did fight, you know, close together in shield walls and, you know, shoulder to shoulder. Even when they fought in uh, their duels, uh, there's mention of a, sh- a shield holder for the combatant. So I would imagine you want your shield holder pretty close, you know, maybe right in front of you to uh, to use that shield. So uh, it's obvious that they did fight shoulder to shoulder in, in uh, close proximity to one another and this is really bore out during our training. You know, if we stay together like that, we can mutually support each other. And uh, because if you're out there by yourself, you don't see the person coming in behind you or from the side and you're all done. So uh, we find that it works out a lot better staying together. You know, one example is this weekend uh, on John's team, he got separated from the team. And we uh, once he got separated, we just went over and took him out and uh, killed him, and then we were able to go over and deal with the other guys. But they stayed together, so they were much more successful. By John's John team, he means so. me. <laughs> yeah, I got culled. <laughs> we heckled this team that uh, their their buddy was lying dead over by the bridge, so that's where they could find the bridge. They were. <laughs> um. So you mentioned earlier. Um, about how you felt there were some similarities between special forces teams and Viking, we'll say teams for lack of a better term. Can you talk a little bit more like that about that? Of you know what kind of similarities you've seen, and or maybe what kind of differences? I guess the first thing we must talk about is the uh, the mindset. You know, the uh, the mindset of the Vikings was what was going to happen was going to happen, and all you can do is act honorably. So. Uh, you know, your honor's the most prized thing above all. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of people who have this mindset today. You know, in all of special operations, there's some sort of selection process. Uh, this process is used, you know, to, to weed out those who don't possess the necessary mindset. Um, and that's really what it comes down to is the mindset. I mean, of course, it's physical, um, but if you don't have the mindset to do it, you won't be able to. You know, once you say, I can't. You've already lost the battle. Um, so, you know, in uh, SF, uh, we, we travel in small groups. You know, and we infiltrate by this high-speed means. It's very similar to what the, the Vikings did. Uh, we also form this uh, brotherhood and kinships, you know, that are very strong, very strong ties. And, you know, we see this in the sagas, you know, bonds that are formed are 
stronger in many cases than family bonds. And this really affects many of the battles and uh, many outcomes. So, you know, there's a lot of similarities to, uh, to what we did and, and what the Vikings did. And we'll be right back after the break. If you're enjoying the Hearst Hook podcast, consider subscribing. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or direct on HearstWick.com. And while you're at HearstWick.com, check out the site. We have tons of information about the Viking Age, Viking fighting techniques, mythology, history, culture, and more. And shameless commerce time. We also have training videos, our great Battles of the Viking Age videos, all available on DVD as well as Vimeo On Demand. And if you're looking for something to wear, we even have t-shirts. More swag than you can shake an elf bird at, and you don't even have to sail across the Irish Sea in gale force winds to get it. So, enough of that. Back to the show. So, most of the time we spend on sparring, training and testing our skills, but we also do a lot of uh, scenarios where we actually try to recreate the situation or the scenario that happened in the saga or any speculation we have. Your thoughts on that, and does the military use this tactic? Yeah, sure, of course. Um, you know, you um, are given whatever scenario um, that you have to deal with, and then you have to react to that uh, scenario. So, of course, it makes a huge difference. Uh, that's one thing that we did this weekend during the training was uh, Bill gave a lot more detail of the scenario, what was going on to the fighter. So it really gets you in the mindset of what needs to be done and, you know, what your mission is. So I think that's uh, that's very similar uh, to what we do. But how different is uh, just uh, fighting for fighting's sake or fighting in a scenario? Well, in a scenario, you have an objective. So you know, you know what you're trying to achieve. And so it um, probably gives you a little more motivation trying to achieve that objective than just, hey, go out there and fight that guy. By having that information, uh, you know, it really helps to, to drive your uh, desire to fight harder. Could you give me an example of how you would do this in the military, if it was just fighting for fighting's sake or fighting in a scenario, training-wise? Okay. Because I'm, I'm picturing it like this. Uh, one is paintball. You have two teams, okay, attack each other and win. The other okay. is, okay, there's a hostage there, do something and so on and so forth, and it changes everything because you could break this door or you could go without fighting and so on and so forth. So the scenario is really going to dictate how you perform the mission. So the variables that are given within the the dictates of the scenario are, are going to force you to do one thing or the other. Or maybe you wouldn't do something the way that you would would do it without that scenario, but you're forced into doing it that way. So that's why the scenario is so important because it gives you the parameters of the, the, the scope of the uh, operation, the mission that you have to perform. So it's, it's key uh, information to have. Most groups that do Viking combat just do fighting for fighting sakes. Okay, you're an A team, you're a B team and fight. And what, what we realize when we do scenario is just it's a different world. Okay, let's. Uh, how how should I use the terrain? Can I throw the rock at him? Uh, can we just cheat him? So it, it gives us some deep research. That's that's all I'm saying is that uh, most people don't do this and don't understand why you do scenarios. Yeah, well, by doing it in an actual location, you know, um, on a ship or you know, on a beach or in a bog, it's going to give you that perspective, first-hand perspective of what it's like to fight there in that uh, situation. So the scenario becomes real. 
you know, you're not in a training room on a flat surface saying, oh, look, I'm jumping over this river. You know, we've done that in training and there's, that has value. But when you actually go to a real creek, a real river, whatever, uh, you know, then you have to pick the spots you're going to cross. And some places are better than others and the terrain is varied. So it really changes everything about the fight. That's why we used to use a scenario driven training in Hurstwick because it's it's going to dictate the way that you fight. When you train for combat, you want to train as closely as you can to the way that you're really going to fight. Um, but you can't do it exactly. And you say, well, why not? Why can't I train exactly? Well, you know, we don't want to kill our training partners. So we have to modify some aspect of the training. So, you know, for example, I can live fire and shoot at dummy targets, or I can shoot some munitions at live targets. So it's not exactly the same as combat, but it's, it's very similar. And then when you use aspects of training like that, and then you throw in the actual terrain, then you're getting really close to the way combat really is. So, you know, that's as close as we can train to combat uh, without actually using steel weapons and killing each other. Uh, you know, so this is how we approach training at Hurstwick. We can use training weapons and go at full speed and force, or we can use steel weapons, but we can't go full speed or full force so you know each type has its advantages and disadvantages um, but by using a combination of these different types of drills and sparring i think we can build the skills necessary uh, to replicate viking age combat most people just do sparring and think viking combat but what we do is we do sparring and then we do it in the train and that's how we really figure out okay we were dead wrong about this this did not work or the stance yeah. was wrong or so on Oh, well, exactly. You have to do that. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I, you know, people all the time sit in classrooms and theorize about how great things are going to be. And then they, when they get out there to actually do it, everything, you know, just goes to crap because they didn't think of all the factors going into it. So it's the same, you know, you can train in the sparring training room all day, but if you get out there on the train where there's actual, you know, things to trip over and, you know, obstacles that you can't go through and that you can use to your advantage and disadvantage and you know uh it, it changes everything about the fight so uh you're right it is key i can definitely speak to that because we uh, a group of us part of the herstwick vinland group and also uh, from cape cod and also the uh the millbury group was at robin's house uh doing some training last weekend and there was one scenario in particular that uh, was very interesting how it, it came out. I was uh, stuck on a little spit of land uh, with a partner defending it, and uh, it didn't go well for us But because uh, there was only two of us against the other, what, five. Um, but uh, there were trees on this little spit of land and clumps of trees, and it made a it made the, uh, we were able to anchor our flanks, if you will, on those trees, and it made it very difficult to get around to flank us. And in the training room, just sparring, you wouldn't have that. You wouldn't really have that kind of terrain opportunity. And it was very eye-opening to be able to, you know, fight a small combat like that, but, and use the terrain to your advantage. It was really very interesting. Yeah, and when we uh, studied, you know, battles of the past, I mean, how often is it that terrain is the key to the whole battle? I mean, <laughs> very often. So it's not, you know, luck. It was uh, by choosing key terrain. So 
think that's what we tried to replicate this weekend when Bill and I went out and scouted some of these locations. Uh, we saw some were better than others. Some replicated the Saga location fairly well, some not so well, but it's still, you know, each location's its own. So you, you had the, uh, the experience of trying to defend that spit of land. So, yeah, I thought it was really valuable training. John mentioned earlier that it was uh, him and someone else against many. And the sagas are filled with uh, one person against many, for example, Gislasar. But this seems like just heroic fantasy, where one man makes the last stand and kills loads and loads of people. Is this something that is has happened in the military? And um, is it the norm? Or, or please uh, give us your thoughts on this. Yeah, of course. I mean, we can look at many instances throughout history of one person holding off a lot of other people. You know, we can look at, uh, you know, Stanford uh, Bridge, you know, so uh, there one Viking with an axe held off uh, people for a long time. Uh, there's other, you know, more modern versions of this where, you know, a few people have held off uh, many people for a long period of time. So, uh Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's uh, outrageous fantasy on the saga's part. I think it's um, pretty factual. Uh, of course, you know, things get exaggerated a little bit, but uh, do I think that Geesley could have made a stand there and wounded and killed as many people as he did? Absolutely. You know, it also depends on the skill of the fighter and the motivation of the guys coming after him. You know, hey, they really didn't have a beef with Geesley. They were just told to get over there and kill this guy, you know. So, you know, except for maybe the close kinsmen, that, that none of them really cared that much about it. So they probably weren't fighting as hard as Geesley, who's fighting for his life. So, uh, you know, that's a motivation is a determining factor there also. So, um, sure, I don't think it's a bunch of... Uh, you know, uh, nonsense. I think there's something to a lot of these sagas. And th this has happened in modern times as well, you say? Sure. We can, uh, you know, we can look at uh, examples of some of the modern conflicts. I mean, one that comes to mind is, you know, Black Hawk Down. You know, those guys were trapped for a long period of time against an overwhelming force, but they were able to hold them off, you know, through uh, technology and firepower. Um, you know, air power helped. Um, we've also had it with, with smaller teams uh, where teams have been compromised and, you know, they need help and they've called in air support, and, which has dropped, you know, their munitions danger close to them and, you know, was able to save them. So, um, you know, a few against many has happened, you know, many times in history. You know, we can look at, you know, the Spartans, you know, the, held their... Uh, At the Hod Gates, they they held against millions of Persians, so uh, they were they, they couldn't hold them indefinitely, but they held them long enough to uh, to you know reach their mission and their objective. Over the years, um, you know, I think we've known each other for about three or four years now, Robin. Um, you you've told us a lot of stories about your experiences, and uh, and I know you've met some interesting people. Uh, Have you met anyone in your travels, certainly with the uh, with the military, uh, folks that uh, you would um, describe as a modern day Viking or somebody with that kind of mindset? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're probably too numerous to name. I think the vast majority kind of 
you know, feel a, a close tie to the warriors of the Viking age. You know, we've shared similar experiences as they did. So it really um, brings us closer to them. Uh, you know, we shed blood, sweat and tears with our brothers. We suffered hardship and trial together, but, you know, because of our bond, we succeed. So, uh, you know, we trust each other with our lives and willing to sacrifice for the good of everyone. So, uh, I think those are some of the attributes that we see within uh, people within the Viking Age that succeeded. You know, the ones who were famous, who had sagas written about them. Uh, that was the mindset they had. So uh, I think this is uh, the mindset of many people today. You know, people still have those same attitudes. Uh, you know, we want to achieve a common goal and we'll do whatever's necessary to achieve it. So, uh, you know, there's so many people I've met during my career um, that have that exact same attitude mindset. And that's really why special operations is, is so successful because we all have that desire to win, the desire to, to get the mission done, to do what it takes to, to finish it. So uh, yeah, I think, I think we all have a close kinship to the Viking age. Uh, a slight uh, bonus question, uh, because when you were uh, talking about this, I thought about uh, two verses of Hawamal. One is that uh, when you open a door, you have to look around because you never uh, you never know where the enemy is. And the other is uh, never be further than one step away from your weapon. Is this something similar to the military experience? Well, of course, yeah. I mean, you know, you you have to carry your weapon everywhere you go because you never know when you're going to need it. And it was the same during the Viking Age. We can see some examples where people got a little too far away from their weapon and they weren't able to properly defend themselves. So uh, it was important back then just as it is today. So, uh, you know, everywhere you go, you you take your weapon with you so that you can you can defend I like to say that, you know, human nature doesn't change, only the technology changes. So, you know, we see the same things uh, happening today that happened during the times of the saga. So uh, it's very similar. I was pondering this as a question for people who are either in Viking teams, wherever they are in the world, or people who know nothing about Vikings, but really Viking competent and really want to know. So just if... For example, I had never heard of Herstuk and never knew anything about how to train it. What would you say to me as a just stupid beginner? What what should I look for? Yeah, so uh, what would I suggest for people starting out training or what would you look for in training? Or, you know, why would you choose the Herstuk method of training, I guess is a good question. So, uh, you know, as we said, there's nothing written down. Nobody knows how they fought. You know, there's just these tales of the sagas. Um, that tell us a little bit about things that happen. You know, somebody got cut in half. Okay, well, that's not really giving me a whole lot of information, but it's giving me some. And, you know, so I can look at the, the tools uh, that they had during the time, and I can take those and and try to replicate the moves. But, you know, there's really not one magic pill that you can take. So that's really why, like, the, the approach that Hurstwick has taken, you know, they uh, – you know, we use a combination of drills uh, to build muscle memory uh, with the drills. Uh, we use training weapons, sparring. You know, this helps us build our speed, our target acquisition and, and power. And, you know, then we use steel also um, so that we can actually use weapons and 
build respect for those weapons. But, you know, if you're not using a combination uh, such as this in your training, then it's really not multidimensional. And I don't think you're going to develop the skills necessary to be successful, you know, warrior during the Viking age. So by using this combination of, of drills and sparring, I think we can really replicate how it was to, to fight during the, the Viking age. You bring up a really good point. Uh, we we talked to uh, Barbara Wechter recently uh, about training weapons that she makes, and uh, one of the things that um, that came out of that discussion was you can, um, if you train with steel, you obviously uh, you have to trade a little bit of um, uh, power for safety, um, unless you have incredibly good protective gear. Uh, so, but with some of the training weapons, you can, in fact, hit much harder. You can, uh, you know, land blows that are more realistic. So your movements are more realistic and more, uh, more like what you would do. So it's that trade-off, I think, um, between the two things that's important and why it's important to be multidisciplinary about this. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, when we use the training weapons, that's that's what we're doing. We're building that speed. You're going to cut with that training weapon just like you would the speed of a real sword. So you're getting that, that motion, that fast motion, you know, that power. You're going to cut with power, which, you know, you really can't do that with steel. you got to take it down or you're going to seriously injure your your partner there, you know. You know, people always say, well, we train with steel. Well, okay, well, so do we, but, you know. We use these other techniques also, and um, these really help us build our speed and our our uh, accuracy. You know, with these uh, with these training weapons. So you also have to weigh, you know, the risk involved. You know, you can uh, mitigate the risk, but you know, it's really hard to do a steel. So, like John was saying, you know, you have to really armor up and armor up heavily to go full speed and power with with steel. Otherwise, you know, you're gonna suffer catastrophic injuries so is that's not really acceptable but you can you can do that with uh, the training weapons you can go full speed full force with much much lighter armor so you're getting a more accurate rep- representation i think of the the combat so you know it's like in the military shooting simunitions so you know i'm using my actual weapon and but i'm just shooting dummy rounds rubber bullets if you will plastic bullets at you so, you know, everything's the same, except I'm just not shooting real bullets. So I think that's why training with uh, the training weapons is so important. Now, you never sacrifice safety for speed, so you really can't do that with the steel weapons. Now, is there a place for steel? Absolutely, because you need to handle those steel weapons. But, you know, I think by using a combination of, you know, cutting drills with steel weapons, uh, so you're familiar with the weapon, and then some sparring with steel weapons, um, that way you're actually handling the weapon and you're feeling the movement of it. Um, sure, you got to take down the, the force and the power, but you're still getting good training out of it. So that's what Herswick does well is use a combination of these drills, training, sparring, and steel sparring. So uh, that's, uh, I think, a really good approach to give you an accurate picture of, of combat. And then when we add in the scenarios to it we go out there of course you know we do that mainly with training weapons but you're out there just like you would be in a real situation 
you know, able to go full speed, full force, full power. So, you know, I think it's probably the closest representation we can get of actual combat without killing each other. All right. Robin Cooper, Rainier Oskarsson, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, really uh, appreciated the insights. Our listeners will be very, very uh, interested to, to hear this stuff. Guys, thanks, and uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah, thanks a lot, John and Rainer, for hosting me tonight. I really enjoyed our discussion. Uh, hope it brings some insight into the training we do at Hurstwick. Thank you, Robin. It's been really insightful to have a, a man with a really special vision that uh, we appreciate having. Thanks, Rainer. I appreciate it. And that is our show. This was our fourth episode, so if this is the first time you're hearing us, go back to wherever you found this one and check out some of our earlier episodes. Also, if you like this, head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate us, or better yet, leave a review. It really does help us rise up in the search results when people are looking for podcasts about all things biking. We hope you enjoyed our time with Robin Cooper. We hope we have inspired you to try some scenario-based action in your own training. We have found team-based training to be particularly valuable, as valuable, if not more so, than one-on-one sparring because we know if you have a friend whom you really trust and from whom you want nothing but good you should mix your soul with his and exchange gifts go and see him often the Hurstwick podcast was produced by Dr. William Short and Rainier Oskerson editing, engineering, music and hosting are by me, John Davis the Hurstwick podcast is a production of Hurstwick LLC This is your cue. You sent me that too. Okay. <laughs> you just got your right. voice. So I just.